Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Well, as we continue on, typically we have our scripture reading here. Uh, But this morning, we've really already sat with our scripture reading from the lectionary this morning, Psalm 139, and Jenny led us in uh, that passage. And Psalm 139, I thought, was a perfect way to start because we're entering into this uh, new season over the months ahead. We're going to be asking ourselves the question, what is the story of Jesus? What is the Jesus story? What is the Christian story? Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian, particularly in this time and moments where, goodness, I mean, we all know it's a wild, wild world out there. And and so what does it mean? And how do we create a big enough story uh, to enter into all seasons of life? And so we're starting to talk about that. Psalm 139 uh, is the perfect way to start because we get these images of creation. We get these images of the intentionality of creation that God down to the smallest grain of sand is thinking about us. God down to the smallest sinew and tendon in our body is crafting not only us, but creation at large, the cosmos, and has intentional plans for all of that. And so we're gonna spend some time getting into that this morning. Uh, Let's take a moment and uh, we'll just pray to, to begin this time. And so Lord, as we think about your story, your good story. I pray you'd recaptivate us with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's so easy for those of us who have been around the church for any length of time to quickly start going through motions, to quickly start having mental assent about ideas, but, but we don't want to just think the right things. We don't want to just go through motions. We want to be deeply reshaped by Jesus that we might bear witness to what you are doing in this world. And so as we spend the next few months walking step by step from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, would you captivate us again? Help us to see it afresh. Would you breathe fresh life on stories and the story that we know well And yet we do well to be captured by afresh. Would you do that in each of our hearts? And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Remember this one thing, said Badger. The stories people tell have a way of taking care of them. If stories come to you, care for them. And learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. And this is why we put stories into each other's memories. It is how we care for ourselves. That's a quote from Barry Lopez in his book, The Crow and the Weasel. And uh, I think it gets to this idea, sometimes we need a story more than food to stay alive. And as we sit and think about what is God's big story, part of what we are hoping to do is create room in our lives for every season. 
You know, often we end up with small little versions of the story and it feels sufficient for a season, but then something happens. We go through something unprecedented. We meet someone new or we start a new job or we experience some sort of suffering and the story doesn't seem to hold up anymore. And my hope would be that just as last fall we spent time carving out this table that was built to hold up the great feast and we talked about how we need all the different legs of the table, all the different traditions of our faith in order to have a big enough table to hold up the feast in the same way we need a big enough story for every season of life. And so ultimately what we're hoping to do over the course of the next eight months is to build a spiritual catechism for our church. A catechism is simply the teaching of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And you know, traditionally that is something something that middle schoolers will walk through. If they've been baptized earlier in their journey and now they wanna go through a confirmation process, they'll go through a catechism to confirm for themselves, yes, I want to say yes to this story. I wanna say yes to Jesus in my life. But a lot of times catechisms are a little bit dry. They're a little bit head knowledge. And as we sat with it, we, we thought, well, let's build this thing, but let's build it in a way that gets us praying for one another. Let's build it in a way that gets us really tapping into what does it mean to walk with Jesus in all of the different uh, ways and seasons of our life. And so then we thought, well, if we're gonna build it, let's build it and share it with the whole community. And so what we do over the course of this next season will eventually become a curriculum for our middle schoolers. But we thought, let's just all walk through it together, sitting with this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And my hope would be that there are fresh and compelling ways that we might think about that, that are both ancient and rooted in the great story and also help us see the story afresh and see it with more wonder. The best way I know how to answer that question, how to be a Christian, is to tell a story. It's not to give details, it's not to give doctrine, those things matter, but ultimately it is that we get caught up in a story bigger than ourselves. And so sometimes it's helpful to zoom in on a passage, to study it, to tear it apart. We did that in house church last week. We did a Lexio Divina process where we sat with a scripture multiple times and we allowed uh, you know, the details of that scripture to be highlighted by the Holy Spirit, and that's good. But other times, what is really needed is to zoom way, way, way out, not to the 10,000, not to the 20,000, to the 100,000-foot level and see the entire story at the meta level, to see its arc, to see its trajectory, to see the curvature of the story a way an astronaut can only see the curvature of the Earth when they get way, way, way back from it. And that's what we're hoping to do in this time. We're gonna notice these great and tenacious themes. I say tenacious because it's like God is intent on sticking with certain things over and over and over again in the story. And it's a magnificent story that I hope we might find our little stories shaped by as we begin orbiting around them and our lives and our calendars and our priorities become captivated by that story. And so we'll talk about this as we go on, but even through the next few months, we'll, we'll enter the story starting with Genesis 1. We'll go all the way through the story of Israel, the people, the promises of God, the prophets. We'll talk about exodus and exile. We'll talk about incarnation. Jesus shows up and we move into the season of Advent and then we're gonna follow the church calendar and it on its own tells us the rest of the story. It tells us the story of, of Jesus entering into our world, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the gift to the, the church of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so we'll walk through all of that as we, as we sit with this question about how do we live this story. And my hope is that we could reclaim it a little bit um, 
the story of what does it mean to follow Jesus, I think, has been pretty drastically reduced in our world. Um, and, and redacted and, and maybe uh, reduced, maybe put into lesser language than I think it could be. And so, not that we'll tell it perfect, but my hope is that we can tell it in a way that helps us fall in love again. Uh, that we would steward this story, that we'd be cared for by this story, that we would submit our lives to the wise and healing word that is at the center of the story. Not that we would master the words, but we would be mastered by the word so that our lives begin to tell the story on their own. Uh, we're gonna do this by looking less at individual Bible stories, right? So we're not gonna flannel graph, you know, the, the flood and, and the, you know, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> Daniel in the lion's den, we won't do that. Instead, we're gonna look at the themes, we're gonna look at the motifs, we're gonna try to see how there are these, these, these uh, layers and, and trajectories. There is uh, a woven thread where layer upon layer, Genesis and Revelation and John and Judges and Jude, they are all connected. They're incredibly layered. This is not meant to be uh, a story of just timeless truth. The Bible is not meant to be mere morality. The Bible is not meant to be basic instructions for living in this world. It's not chicken soup for the soul. What we have, what was given to us, what God chose to give us, is a beautiful and surprising and shocking and intricately woven word and sometimes it comforts us and sometimes it offends us. And there's meaning upon meaning and layer upon layer. But in the end, it is the most simple story. And I love how Father Kenneth Tanner puts it. This is the story that God makes what he loves and loves what he makes and becomes what he loves in order to make that which he loves be with him forever. This is a good story. So we're gonna chart it over the course of five acts. Uh, it's a drama told in five acts, a story told in five acts. And we're gonna lean heavy on the incredible work of N.T. Wright. If you're not familiar, N.T. Wright's probably the preeminent New Testament scholar in our world today. And he has proposed this idea. And this idea is gonna kind of guide us over this, this season. Uh, we'll sit with it as the big image that we build this on. And the idea is this. Imagine if somebody discovered a brand new Shakespeare play that no one had ever found before. You know, they're rummaging through their closet, and one day they find in this old bin words. And they're like, this is a play. And they start to read it. Like, this is a really good play. <laughs> this is a masterful play. And they, they give it to the experts, and they give it to the scholars, and over time it's able to be determined, like, this was written by Shakespeare. This is brilliant. This is a masterpiece. It has all the telltale signs of a brilliant playwright, and the first act in the play is hauntingly beautiful, and the second act introduces drama and tension and tragedy, and the third act starts to evoke some hope. Maybe there is redemption in this story. The fourth act begins to tell the story of that redemption, but then here's the thing. The fifth act is missing. It's missing. We have the final words, but we don't have the fifth act. It's like those pages got up and walked away. And so the act, the full story is incomplete. It's unfinished. It's left in progress. We know the first four acts, but the fifth act is going to have to be improvised. And we have enough source material to improvise it well, but we're going to have to figure it out on the fly. And to do that, 
The idea would be to honor the story as it's been told so far, to bring it to the author's initial intentions and completion, and yet to also realize we're going to have to do something new here because we don't have all the pieces of this. And so to do that well, to do that faithfully, to do that in a way that honors the author is going to require intentional study of the script. It's going to require that we are bold yet surrendered storytellers. It's gonna need wise and experienced directors. And most of all, it's gonna need a whole host of actors who get out of the cheap seats of watching the story and begin to participate as actors in the story. And they're gonna have to work out the fifth act on the fly. They're gonna build on what's gone before, but do something truly new. And that's how the the finale is going to be finished. And so here's what N.T. Wright means by that. He gives us these five labels to the acts, and you can see them on your handout here. They're also gonna come up on the screen. And this is what's gonna guide us over the months ahead. The five acts, act one, creation, act two, uh, these are not his words, these are slightly adapted words that I've put for our community. <laughs> I'm calling it us. Act three, promise. Act four, Jesus. Act five, recreation. And if you think about it in terms of Wright's image, what we have are the first four acts brilliantly told in Scripture, and we know the final words of Act 5. We know where the story's going to end. But when the Holy Spirit is given to the church at Pentecost, what we're given is instructions into an unfinished future. And we are sent to improvise in light of honoring the author's intentions how this story's going to be brought to its completion, and that is the task of you and I. And so, let's walk through these stages here in our final few moments, and then we'll start digging into them in detail next week. We'll start at literally Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 next week. But we start with this idea of creation in the beginning, that in the very beginning, before God created the heavens and the earth, God already existed, right? So Genesis 1-1 actually presupposes that something came before the beginning, because we've already got God in community with himself, Three and one, one and three, and there's the overflow of united love in the Trinity, and when united love overflows, what it always does is creates a family. And so the overflowing united love of the Trinity creates the family of creation. God creates this family in his image, and he forms our inward parts. He knits creation together. We are fearfully and wonderfully woven together. The author writes a book that tells the great story of all of our days, and the story is good. God stands back from all he has made and says, it is good. It is good. We know the story doesn't stop there. We move to the second act, the falling self and sin. We pick it up in Genesis chapter three. There's the great fall of humankind. Sin and death enter the story. There's selfishness and scarcity begin to dominate and animate the ways we show up in the world. We see this begin in Genesis three, but it becomes exponential all the way to the Babel story in Genesis 11. And violence increases, we make ourselves the king. These are the themes that begin to dominate act two. But God is setting out a rescue plan. We enter into act three, there is a promise. It is ultimately the promise of God, but what he promises are that he is going to raise up a family, a family of people. He's gonna give them a promised place, a promised land, and he's going to give them the prophets who are gonna keep calling them back. And so this begins with the story of Abraham, 
Abraham is given the great covenant that God's going to make a family that is going to be a blessing to the whole world, that's going to help bring back what God originally intended. But these people are struggling. They're struggling people. They're one step forward, two steps back kind of people. They're faithful on Sunday, but not so faithful Monday through Saturday kind of people. In other words, they're just like me, just like you perhaps. And they stumble through this. This is what ordinary life looks like. This is what ordinary time looks like. They walk through how do we be formed into the people of God until eventually they are led on an exodus and then eventually that exodus becomes an exile. And they're under the thumb of the human government that they had hoped for. They said, give us a king, give us a king. And then they get the king and the king is tyrannical and rules over them, right? And isn't that the way that our world often goes? And so they're faced with this question, are we gonna yield to the king or are we gonna keep crowning ourselves? And that's the question we're gonna enter into And as the liturgical year comes to its final day, Christ the King Sunday, right before Advent. That's the question we sit with. Will we crown ourselves or will we yield to the king? And then they enter into a time of great suffering. The prophets raise their voices. They call the people back to stage three promise again and again and again. And for 400 years, they wait in a time of silence until a baby is born. We enter the story of the baby breaking the silent night at Advent. We walk into the new season where we, we hear the promise that God is going to set all things right and he's going to do this by moving toward us and finally the baby is born, the baby, uh, God in flesh moves into the neighborhood and dwells among us. It's epiphany, Christ is born, epiphany. We sit in the season of epiphany as we sit in the blinding light of God in flesh coming to set things right again. It's a second fall. God has come down to match the first fall. And ultimately, God will rise to set things right again. And so Jesus grows and he lives and he teaches and he suffers. He suffers in the 40 days of the wilderness at Lent. He suffers in the 33 years of living on the far side east of Eden and he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and they say, here is our king, Hosanna, Hosanna. But how quickly, how quickly, the cheers and the acclamation and the we're here to worship you becomes crucify him, right? This God loves so well that it scares us, and so we kill him. And sin and death, those early enemies have their final showdown with Jesus on Good Friday, they, they sit on Holy Saturday, but then on the first day of a new week, the fall is met with a rising. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. And so we move into that fifth stage, recreation. Recreation. We start moving toward the end of this story, toward the setting right, the redemption of the story. Jesus passes his spirit onto a small band of believers at Pentecost. God is still with us even though Christ has risen Right? And we're invited to be remade into the image of God that we were created in from the very beginning. And from that image, we have work to do. We have stories to tell. We have good news to share. We have love to give. And then we reach the point where the pages get blank. Well, now what? We're given the spirit. We're given the instructions. We're told to go love God and love our neighbor, but we have to figure that out in the context of this world right here, right now. And so as we look at the story, we start to notice a trend that 
people have a way of telling whatever happened in the act that came before theirs, right? Israel retold the story of creation and fall, and Jesus retold the story of the promised place and the people of Israel. And so our task becomes clear. We retell the story that came before us, the story of Jesus, the story of the rising king, the story of salvation. And as we study that story, we find that we are given the final words of the play. We are given Revelation 21 and 22. We know where this story is going, though there's a gap in exactly how we get there. But what began as creation will end as new creation. And in the end, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things in heaven and earth shall be well. God's going to set it right again. And our task is to discover through prayer, through the Holy Spirit, how do we get there from here? And so there it is. That's the big enough story that we'll walk through from now till Pentecost. And downstairs, our preschoolers and our elementary students are going to be doing something really similar, working with their new curriculum, which is called God's Big Story. They've got timelines up on the wall. They're going to follow the church calendar. They're going to set up the different elements of walking through this story as they enter it with us. Now, I want to say a final word on this before we wrap up and come to the table, which is this. When I say we improvise the fifth act, when N.T. Wright says that, really, what we don't mean, what he does not mean, is that we make things up as we go along and anything goes, right? We are here toward the end of a symphony that has already been given a tune and a key and a cadence. There's already a melody. We enter in and we live faithfully to that in the same tone and in the same tune. We yield to the whole context of the story and we notice the story is on a trajectory, which means the fifth act is going to look different than the third act. And I think this gets really practical. It starts to help us from things that trip us up. And so N.T. Wright proposes that a question for us is what time is it in the story? What time is it? In other words, where do I live in the context of God's big story? Because when we get that wrong, we start not knowing how to understand scripture. We try to get this world to go back to act one. How do I get this thing back to Eden? Right? How do I make everybody behave in such a way that we all get right again? And, and of course, it's a doomed experiment. We're not living in act one anymore and we can't get the story back there. What we can do is anticipate act five and we can move toward that, right? We don't live in act three and so we don't need to offer animal sacrifices, right? We don't need to follow the Levitical code precisely. We don't need to build a new temple. In fact, Jesus has precisely ended the old temple and said the temple of the Holy Spirit is within you. So the story is changing over time. And so we live in this weird tension in between the times where we have to figure out what is God doing now that is both faithful to the whole story yet may involve something genuinely new and fresh as God continues unveiling his story. That is not how we become disloyal to the story. That is how we become loyal to the story. And we enter in trying to discern what God is doing in our day and in our time, knowing that one day God will write the end of the story. And it's a story where he makes what he loves, and he loves what he makes, and he becomes what he loves in order to make what he loves be with him forever. Amen. Jesus, help us enter this story with our whole lives. I'm reminded of that prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that says, let us love you not only with our lips, but with our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and walking before you. 
And so as we walk into our time, the time in the story that we live in now, Act 5, where we don't always know if we're being honest exactly what to do. We don't know exactly what to say. We don't know on the, the difficult, discerning, thorny issues of our day exactly what we should do to faithfully respond to you. Would you help us be people of prayer? People who listen. People who hear your heartbeat and see your story and the trajectory of your story and say, yes, help me cooperate, participate, co-create with what you are doing, God. Give us wisdom for that task. Pull us off the cheap seats and into the story that we may with you bear witness to the healing of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.